You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I found a very interesting account here of General Crook's War with the Apaches. We'll cover part one today. Hope you enjoy it. The title of the book, An Apache Campaign in the Sierra Madre. Written by Captain John G. Bork. An account of the expedition in pursuit of the hostile Chiricahua Apaches in the spring of 1883. Bork was a captain of the 3rd Cavalry, U.S. Army. Copyright 1886. Preface. The recent outbreak of a fraction of the Chiricahua Apaches and the frightful atrocities which have marked their trail through Arizona, Sonora, New Mexico, and Chihuahua has attracted renewed attention to these brave but bloodthirsty aborigines and to the country exposed to their ravages. The contents of this book, which originally appeared in a serial form in the Outing Magazine of Boston, represent the details of the expedition led by General Crook to the Sierra Madre, Mexico, in 1883, but as the present military operations are conducted by the same commander, against the same enemy, and upon the same field of action, a perusal of these pages will, it is confidently believed, place before the reader a better knowledge of the general situation than any article which is likely soon to appear. There is this difference to be noted, however, of the 125 fighting men brought back from the Sierra Madre. Less than one-third have engaged in the present hostilities, from which fact an additional inference may be drawn both of the difficulties to be overcome in the repression of these disturbances and of the horrors which would surely have accumulated upon the heads of our citizen had the whole fighting force of this fierce band taken to the mountains. One small party of eleven hostile Chiricahuas during the period from November 15, 1885 to the present date has killed twenty-one friendly Apaches living in peace upon the reservation and no less than 25 white men, women, and children. This bloody raid has been conducted through a country filled with regular troops, militia, and rangers, and that a loss to the enemy, so far as can be shown, of only one man, whose head is now at Fort Apache. An Apache Campaign, Part 1, John G. Bork Within the compass of this volume, it is impossible to furnish a complete dissertation upon the Apache Indians were the causes which led up to the expedition about to be described. The object is simply to outline some of the difficulties attending the solution of the Indian question in the Southwest, and to make known the methods employed in conducting campaigns against savages in hostility. It is thought that the object desired can best be accomplished by submitting an unmutilated extract from the journal carefully kept during the whole period involved. Much has been necessarily been excluded, but without exception, it has been to avoid repetition, or else to escape the introduction of information bearing upon the language, the religion, marriages, funeral ceremonies, etc., of this interesting race, which would increase the bulk of the manuscript, and perhaps detract from its value in the eyes of the general reader. Ethnologically, the Apache is classed with the Tinna tribes, 
living close to the Yukon and Mackenzie Rivers, within the Arctic Circle. For centuries, he has been preeminent over the more peaceful nations about him for courage, skill, and daring in war, cunning in deceiving and evading his enemies, ferocity in attack when skillfully planned ambuscades have led an unwary foe into his clutches, cruelty and brutality to captives, patient endurance and fortitude under the greatest privations. In peace, he has commanded respect for keen-sighted intelligence, good fellowship, warmth of feeling for his friends, and impatience of wrong. No Indian has more virtues, and none has been more truly ferocious when aroused. He was the first of the Native Americans to defeat in battle, or outwit in diplomacy, the all-conquering, smooth-tongued Spaniard, with whom, and his Mexican mongrel descendants, he has waged cold-blooded, heart-sickening war since the days of Cortez. When the Spaniard had firearms and corselet of steel, he was unable to push back this fierce, astute aborigine, provided simply with lance and bow. The past fifty years have seen the Apache provided with arms of precision, and especially since the introduction of magazine breech-loaders. The Mexican has not only ceased to be an intruder upon the Apache, but has trembled for the security of life and property in the squalid hamlets of the states of Chihuahua and Sonora. In 1871, the War Department confided to General George Crook the task of whipping into submission all the bands of Apache Nation living in Arizona. How thoroughly that duty was accomplished is now a matter of history. But at the last moment, one band, the Chiricahuas, was especially exempted from Crook's jurisdiction. They were not attacked by troops, and for years led a jack-in-the-box sort of in existence, now popping into an agency, and now popping out, anxious if their own story is to be credited, to live at peace with the whites, but unable to do so from lack of nourishment. When they went upon their reservation, rations in abundance were promised for themselves and families. A difference of opinion soon arose with the agent as to what constituted a ration. The wicked Indians, laboring under the delusion that it was enough food to keep the recipient from starving to death, and objecting to an issue of supplies based upon the principle according to which grumbling jack-tars used to say that prize money was formally apportioned, that is, by being thrown through the rungs of a ladder, what stuck being the share of the Indians, and what fell to the ground being the share of the agent. To the credit of the agent, it must be said that he made a praiseworthy but ineffectual effort to alleviate the pangs of hunger by a liberal distribution of hymn-books among his wards. The perverse Chiricahuas, not being able to digest works of that nature, and unwilling to acknowledge the correctness of the agent's arithmetic, made up their minds to sally out from San Carlos and take refuge in the more hospitable wilderness of the Sierra Madre. Their discontent was not allayed by rumors whispered about of the intention of the agent to have the whole tribe removed bodily to the Indian territory. Coal had been discovered on the reservation, and speculators clamored that the land involved be thrown open for development, regardless of the rights of the Indians. But, so the story goes, matters suddenly reached a focus when the agent one day sent his chief of police to arrest a Chiricahua charged with some offense deemed worthy of punishment in the guardhouse. The offender started to run through the Indian camp, and the chief of police fired at him, but missed his aim and killed a luckless old squaw, who happened to be in range. This wretched marksmanship was resented by the Chiricahuas, who refused to be comforted by the profuse apologies tendered for the accident. 
"'They silently made their preparations, "'waiting long enough to catch the chief of police, "'kill him, cut off his head, "'and play a game of football with it. "'And then, like a flock of quail, "'the whole band, men, women, and children, "'710 in all, "'started on the dead run for the Mexican boundary, "'150 miles to the south. "'Hotly pursued by the troops, "'they fought their way across southern Arizona "'and New Mexico, "'their route marked by blood and devastation.' The valleys of the Santa Cruz and San Pedro witnessed a repetition of the once-familiar scenes of farmers tilling their fuels with rifles and shotguns strapped to the plow handle. While engaged in fighting off the American forces, which pressed too closely upon their rear, the Apaches were attacked in the front by the Mexican column under Colonel Garcia, who, in a savagely contested fight, achieved a substantial victory, in quotes, killing 85 and capturing 30. Eleven of which total of 115 were men, and the rest women and children. The Chiricahuas claim that when a main body of their warriors reached the scene of the engagement, the Mexicans evinced no anxiety to come out from the rifle pits they hastily dug. To this fact, no allusion can be found in the Mexican commanders' published dispatches. The Chiricahuas, now reduced to an aggregate of less than 600, 150 of whom were warriors and big boys, withdrew to the recesses of the adjacent Sierra Madre, their objective point. Not long after this, the Chiricahuas made overtures for an armistice with the Mexicans, who invited them to a little town near Casas Grandes, Chihuahua, for a conference. They were courteously received, plied with liquor until drunk, and then attacked tooth and nail, ten or twelve warriors being killed, and some twenty live or thirty women hurried off to captivity. This is a one-sided description of the affair given by a Chiricahua who participated. The newspapers of that date contained telegraph accounts of a fierce battle and another victory from Mexican sources, so that no doubt there is some basis for the story. We'll return with Part 1 of An Apache Campaign in the Sierra Madre by John G. Bork right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Meantime, General Crook had been reassigned by the President to the command of the Department of Arizona, which he had left nearly ten years previously in a condition of peace and prosperity, with the Apaches hard at work upon the reservation, striving to gain a living by cultivating the soil. Incompetency and rascality in the interval had done their worst, and when Crook returned, not only were the Chiricahuas on the warpath, but all the other bands of the Apache nation were in a state of scarcely concealed defection and hostility. Crook lost not a moment in visiting his old friends among the chiefs and warriors, and by the exercise of a strong personal influence, coupled with assurances that the wrongs of which the Apaches complained should be promptly redressed, succeeded in averting an outbreak which would have made blood flow from the Pecos to the Colorado, and for the suppression of which the gentle and genial taxpayer would have been compelled to contribute most liberally of his affluence. Attended by an aide-de-camp, a surgeon, and a dozen Apache scouts, General Crook next proceeded to the southeast corner of Arizona, from which point he made an attempt to open up communication with the Chiricahuas. In this he was unsuccessful, but learned from a couple of squaws, intercepted while attempting to return to the San Carlos, that the Chiricahuas had sworn vengeance upon Mexicans and Americans alike that their stronghold was an impregnable position in the Sierra Madre, 
a great way below the international boundary, and that they supplied themselves with an abundance of food by raiding upon the cattle ranches and haciendas in the valleys and plains below. Crook now found himself face to face with the following intricate problem. The Chiricahuas occupied a confessedly impregnable position in the precipitous range known as the Sierra Madre. This position was within the territory of another nation so jealous of its privileges as not always to be able to see clearly in what direction its best interests lay. The territory harassed by the Chiricahuas not only stretched across a boundary separating Mexico from the U.S., but was divided into four military departments, two in each country, hence an interminable amount of jealousy, suspicion, fault-finding, and antagonism would surely dog the steps of him who should endeavor to bring the problem to a solution. To complicate matters further, the Chiricahuas, and all the other Apaches as well, were filled with the notion that the Mexicans were a horde of cowards and treacherous liars, afraid to meet them in war, but valiant enough to destroy their women and children, for whose blood, by the savages' law of retaliation, blood must in turn be shed. Affairs went on in this unsatisfactory course from October 1882 until March 1883, everybody in Arizona expecting a return of the dreaded Chiricahuas, but no one knowing where the first attack would be made. The meager military force allotted to the department was distributed so as to cover as many exposed points as possible. One body of 150 Apache scouts, under Captain Emmett Crawford, 3rd Cavalry, being assigned to the arduous duty of patrolling the Mexican boundary for a distance of 200 miles through a rugged country pierced with ravines and canyons. No one was surprised to learn that toward the end of March this skeleton line had been stealthily penetrated by a bold band of 26 Chiricahuas under a very crafty and daring young chief named Chato, Spanish for flat nose. By stealing fresh horses from every ranch, they were successful in traversing from 75 to 100 miles a day, killing and destroying all in their path, the culminating point in their bloody career being the butchery of Judge McComas and wife, prominent and refined people of Silver City, New Mexico, and the abduction of their bright boy Charlie, whom the Indians carried back with them on their retreat through New Mexico and Chihuahua. It may serve to give some idea of the courage, boldness, and subtlety of these raiders to state that in their dash through Sonora, Arizona, New Mexico, and Chihuahua, a distance of not less than 800 miles, they passed at times through localities fairly well settled and close to an aggregate of at least 5,000 troops, 4,500 Mexican and 500 American. They killed 25 persons, Mexican and American, and lost but two one killed near the total wreck mine, Arizona, and one who fell into the hands of the American troops, of which last much has to be narrated. To attempt to catch such a band of Apaches by direct pursuit would be about as hopeless a piece of business as that of catching so many fleas. All that could be done was done. The country was alarmed by telegraph. People at exposed points put upon their guard, while detachments of troops scoured in every direction, hoping, by good luck, to intercept, retard, mayhap destroy, the daring marauders. The trail they had made coming up from Mexico could, however, be followed back to the stronghold, and this, in a military sense, would be the most direct, as it would be the most practical, pursuit. Crook's plans soon began to outline themselves. 
he first concentrated at the most eligible position on the Southern Pacific Railroad, Wilcox, all the skeletons of companies which were available for the protection of Arizona. Forage, ammunition, and subsistence were brought in on every train. The whole organization was carefully inspected to secure the rejection of every unserviceable soldier, animal, or weapon. Telegrams and letters were sent to the officers commanding the troops of Mexico, but no replies were received, the addresses of the respective generals not being accurately known. As their cooperation was desirable, General Crook, as a last resort, went by railroad to Guaymas, Hermosillo, and Chihuahua, there to see personally and confer with the Mexican civil and military authorities. The cordial reception extended him by all classes was the best evidence of the high regard in which he was held by the inhabitants of the two afflicted states of Sonora and Chihuahua, and of their readiness to welcome any force he would lead to effect the destruction or removal of the common enemy. General Topidi and Carbo, soldiers of distinction, the governors of the two states, and Mayor Zubiran of Chihuahua, were most earnest in their desire for a removal of savages whose presence was a cloud upon the prosperity of their fellow citizens. General Crook made no delay in these conferences, but hurried back to Wilcox and marched his command thence to the San Bernardino Springs in the southeast corner of the territory, Arizona Territory. But serious delays and serious complications were threatened by the intemperate behavior of an organization calling itself the Tombstone Rangers, which marched in the direction of the San Carlos Agency with the avowed purpose of cleaning out all the Indians there congregated. The chiefs and head men of the Apaches had just caused word to be telegraphed to General Cook that they intended sending him another hundred of their picked warriors as an assurance and pledge that they were not in sympathy with the Chiricahuas on the warpath. Upon learning of the approach of the rangers, the chiefs prudently deferred the departure of the new levy of scouts until the horizon should clear and enable them to see what was expected from their white neighbors. The whiskey brought along by the rangers was exhausted in less than ten days, when the organization expired of thirst to the gratification of the respectable inhabitants of the frontier, who repudiated an interference with the plans of the military commander, respected and esteemed by them for former distinguished services, meaning crook. At this point, it may be well to insert an outline of the story told by the Chiricahua captive who had been brought down from the San Carlos Agency to Wilcox. He said that his name was Pineo Titian, the coyote saw him, that he was not a Chiricahua, but a white mountain Apache of the Deschin, or Red Clay clan, married to two Chiricahua women, by whom he had children, and with whose people he had lived for years. He had left the Chiricahua stronghold in the mountain called Pagotzin Cay, some five days' journey below Casa Grandes in Chihuahua. From that stronghold the Chiricahuas had been raiding with impunity upon the Mexicans. When pursued, they would draw the Mexicans into the depths of the mountains, ambush them, and kill them by rolling down rocks from the heights. The Chiricahuas had plenty of horses and cattle, but little food of a vegetable character. They were finally provided with sixteen shooting breech-loading rifles, but were getting short of ammunition, and had made their recent raid into Arizona, hoping to replenish their supply of cartridges. Dissensions had broken out among the chiefs, some of whom, he thought, would be glad to return to the reservation. In making raids, they counted upon riding from sixty to seventy-five miles a day as they stole fresh horses all the time and killed those abandoned. 
It would be useless to pursue them, but he would lead General Crook back along the trail they had made coming up from Mexico, and he had no doubt that Chiricahua's could be taken by surprise. He had not gone with them of his own free will, but he had been compelled to leave the reservation, and had been badly treated while with them. The Chiricahua's left to San Carlos because the agent had stolen their rations, beaten their women, and killed an old squaw. He asserted emphatically that no communication of any kind had been held with the Apaches at San Carlos, every attempt in that direction having been frustrated. The Chiricahuas, according to Pa Nyotitian, numbered seventy full-grown warriors and fifty big boys able to fight, with an unknown number of women and children. In their fights with the Mexicans, about one hundred and fifty had been killed and captured, principally women and children. The stronghold in the Sierra Madre was described as a dangerous, rocky, almost inaccessible place, having plenty of wood, water, and grass, but no food except what was stolen from the Mexicans. Consequently, the Chiricahuas might be starved out. General Crook ordered the irons to be struck from the prisoner, to which he demurred, saying he would prefer to wear shackles for the present, until his conduct should prove his sincerity. A half-dozen prominent scouts promised to guard him and watch him, so the fetters were removed, and Pa Nayo Titian, or Peaches, as the soldiers called him, was installed in the responsible office of guide of the contemplated expedition. By April 22nd, many of the preliminary arrangements had been completed and some of the difficulties anticipated had been smoothed over. Nearly 100 Apache scouts joined the command from the San Carlos Reservation, and in the first hours of night began a war dance, which continued without a break until the first flush of dawn the next day. They were all in high feather, and entered into the spirit of the occasion with full zest. Not much time need be wasted upon a description of their dress. They didn't wear any, except breech-clout and moccasins. To the music of an improvised drum, and the accompaniment of marrow-freezing yells and shrieks, they pirouetted and charged in all directions. "'swaying their bodies violently, dropping on one knee, "'and suddenly springing high in the air, discharging their pieces, "'and all the time chanting a rude refrain "'in which their own prowess was exalted "'and that of their enemies alluded to with contempt. "'Their enthusiasm was not abated by the announcement, "'quickly diffused, that the medicine men had been hard at work, "'and had succeeded in making a medicine "'which would surely bring the Chiricahuas to grief.' In accordance with the agreement entered into with the Mexican authorities, the American troops were to reach the boundary line not sooner than May 1, the object being to let the restless Chiricahuas quiet down as much as possible and relax their vigilance, while at the same time it enabled the Mexican troops to get into position for effective cooperation. The convention between our government and that of Mexico, by which a reciprocal crossing of the international boundary was conceded to the troops of the two republics, stipulated that such crossings should be authorized when the troops were in close pursuit of a band of savage Indians, and the crossing was made in the unpopulated or desert parts of said boundary line, which unpopulated or desert parts had to be two leagues from any encampment or town of either country. The commander of the troops crossing was to give notice at the time of crossing, or before if possible. "'to the nearest military commander or civil authority of the country entered. "'The pursuing force was to retire to its own territory "'as soon as it should have fought the band of which it was in pursuit, "'or lost the trail, "'and in no case could it establish itself or remain in the foreign territory 
for a longer time than necessary to make the pursuit of the band whose trail it had followed. The weak points of this convention were the imperative stipulation that the troops should return at once after a fight, and the ambiguity of the terms close pursuit and unpopulated country. A friendly expedition from the United States might follow close on the heels of a party of depredating Apaches, but under a rigid construction of the term unpopulated, have to turn back when it had reached some miserable hamlet exposed to the full ferocity of savage attack, and most in need of assistance, as afterwards proved to be the case. The complication was not diminished by the orders dispatched by General Sherman on March 31st to General Crook to continue the pursuit of the Chiricahuas without regard to departmental or national boundaries. Both General Crook and General Topete, anxious to have every difficulty removed which lay in the way of a thorough adjustment of this vexed question, telegraphed to their respective governments asking that a more elastic interpretation be given to the terms of the convention. I can't help but make a personal note here to say the terms of war, whether it was in 1883 or whether it's today, are always interfered with by government agencies and government administrators who know nothing about what it's taking to win the war on the ground. It just seems like nothing ever changes. To this telegram, General Crook received reply that he must abide strictly by the terms of the convention, which could only be changed with the concurrence of the Mexican Senate. But what these terms meant exactly was left just as much in the dark as before. On April 23rd, General Crook moved out from Wilcox, accompanied by the Indian scouts and a force of seven skeleton companies of the 3rd and 6th Cavalry, under Colonel James Biddle, guarding a train of wagons with supplies of ammunition and food for two months. This force, under Colonel Biddle, was to remain in reserve at or near San Bernardino Springs on the Mexican boundary, while its right and left flanks, respectively, were to be covered by detachments commanded by Rafferty, Vroom, Overton, and Anderson. This disposition affording the best possible protection to the settlements in case any of the Chiricahuas should make their way to the rear of the detachment penetrating Mexico. A disagreeable sandstorm enveloped the column as it left the line of the Southern Pacific Railroad, preceded by the detachment of Apache scouts. A few words in regard to the peculiar methods of the Apaches in marching and conducting themselves while on campaign may not be out of place. To veterans of the campaigns of the Civil War familiar with the compact formations of the cavalry and infantry of the Army of the Potomac, the loose, straggling methods of the Apache scouts would appear startling and yet no soldier would fail to apprehend at a glance that the Apache was the perfect, the ideal, scout of the whole world. When Lieutenant Gatewood, the officer in command, gave the short, jerky order, Ugaje, go, the Apache started as if shot from a gun, and in a minute or less had covered the space of one hundred yards front, which distance rapidly widened as they advanced at a rough, shambling walk in the direction of Dos Cabezas, two heads, the mining cap near which the first halt was to be made. And by the way, you'll recognize the name of Lieutenant Gatewood there, just as quickly as you do General Miles, from our recent Tom Horn story. Gatewood and Miles. They moved with no semblance of regularity. Individual fancy alone governed. Here was a clump of three, not far off two more, and scattered in every point of the compass, singly or in clusters, were these indefatigable scouts, with vision as keen as a hawk's, 
tread as untiring and as stealthy as the panthers, and ears so sensitive that nothing escapes them. An artist, possibly, would object to many of them as undersized, but in all other respects they would satisfy every requirement of anatomical criticism. Their chests were broad, deep, and full, shoulders perfectly straight, limbs well-proportioned, strong and muscular, without a suggestion of undue heaviness, hands and feet small and taper but wiry, heads well-shaped, and countenances often lit up with a pleasant, good-natured expression, which would be more constant, perhaps, were it not for the savage, untamed cast imparted by the loose, disheveled, gypsy locks of raven black, held away from the face by a broad, flat band of scarlet cloth. Their eyes were bright, clear, and bold, frequently expressive of the greatest good humor and satisfaction. Uniforms had been issued, but were donned upon ceremonial occasions only. On the present march, each wore a loosely fitting shirt of red, white, or gray stuff, generally of calico, in some gaudy figure, but not infrequently the somber article of woolen raiment issued to white soldiers. This came down outside a pair of loose cotton drawers, reaching to the moccasins. The moccasins are the most important articles of Apache apparel. In a fight or on a long march, they would discard all else, but under any and every circumstance will retain the moccasins. These had been freshly made before leaving Wilcox. The Indian to be fitted stands erect upon the ground while a companion traces with a sharp knife the outlines of the sole of his foot upon a piece of rawhide. The legging is made of soft buckskin, attached to the foot and reaching to mid-thigh. For convenience in marching, it is allowed to hang in folds below the knee. The rawhide sole is prolonged beyond the great toe and turned upward in a shield, which protects from cactus and sharp stones. A leather belt encircling the waist holds forty rounds of metallic cartridges, and also keeps in place the regulation blue blouse and pantaloons, which are worn upon the person only when the Indian scout is anxious to paralyze the frontier towns or military posts by a display of all his finery. The other trappings of these savage auxiliaries are a Springfield breech-loading rifle, army pattern, a canteen full of water, a butcher knife, an awl in leather case, a pair of tweezers, and a tag. The awl is used for sewing moccasins or work of that kind. With the tweezers, the Apache young man carefully picks out each and every hair appearing on his face. The tag marks his place in the tribe, and is in reality nothing more or less than a revival of a plan adopted during the War of the Rebellion for the identification of soldiers belonging to the different corps and divisions. Each male Indian at the San Carlos is tagged and numbered, and the descriptive list corresponding to the tag kept, with a full recital of all his physical peculiarities. This is the equipment of each and every scout, but there are many, especially the more pious and influential, who carry besides, strapped at the waist, little buckskin bags of hodentin, or sacred meal, with which to offer morning and evening sacrifice to the sun or other deity. Others, again, are provided with the amulets of lightning riven twigs, pieces of quartz crystal, petrified wood, concretionary sandstone, galena, or chalchihuls, or fetiches, represented some of their countless planetary gods, or khan, which are regarded as the dead medicine for frustrating the designs of the enemy, or warding off arrows and bullets in the heat of action. And a few are happy in the possession of priceless sashes and shirts of buckskin, upon which are emblazoned the signs of the sun, 
moon, lightning, rainbow, hail, fire, the water beetle, butterfly, snake, centipede, and other powers to which they may appeal for aid in their hour of distress. The Apache is an eminently religious person, and the more deviltry he plans, the more pronounced does his piety become. The rate of speed attained by the Apaches is about an even four miles an hour on foot, or not quite fast enough to make a horse trot. They keep this up for about fifteen miles, at the end of which distance, if water be encountered and no enemy be sighted, they congregate in bands from ten to fifteen each, hide in some convenient ravine, sit down, smoke cigarettes, chat and joke, and stretch out in the sunlight. If they want to make a little fire, they kindle one with matches, if they happen to have any with them. If not, a rapid twirl between the palms of a hard round stick fitting into a circular hole in another stick of softer fiber will bring fire in from eight to forty-five seconds. The scouts by this time have painted their faces, daubing them with red ochre, deer's blood, or the juice of roasted mescal. The object of this is protection from wind and sun, as well as distinctive ornamentation. The first morning's rest of the Apaches was broken by the shrill cry of Chadi, Chadi, antelope, antelope, and far away on the left the dull slump, slump of rifles told that the Apaches on that flank were getting fresh meat for the evening meal. Twenty carcasses demonstrated that they were not the worst of shots, Neither were they, by any means, bad cooks. When the command reached camp, these restless, untiring nomads built in a trice all kinds of rude shelters. Those that had the army dog tents put them up on frameworks of willow or cottonwood saplings. Others, less fortunate, improvised domiciles of branches covered with grass or of stones and boards covered with gunny sacks. Before these were finished, smoke curled gracefully toward the sky from crackling embers, in front of which, transfixed on wooden spits, were the heads, hearts, and livers of several of the victims of the, of the afternoon's chase. Another addition to the dinner was a cotton-tailed rabbit, run down by these fleet-footed Bedouins of the southwest. Turkeys and quail are caught in the same manner, by running them down on foot. Meanwhile, a couple of scouts were making bread, the light, thin tortillas of the Mexicans, baked quickly in a pan, and not bad eating. Two others were fraternally occupied in preparing their bed for the night. Grass was pulled by handfuls, laid upon the ground, and covered with one blanket, another serving as cover. These Indians, with scarcely an exception, sleep with their feet pointed toward little fires, which they claim are warm, while the big ones built by the American soldiers are so hot that they drive people away from them, and besides, attract the attention of a lurking enemy. At the foot of this bed, an Apache was playing on a homemade fiddle, fabricated from the stalk of the mescal, or American aloe. This fiddle has four strings, and emits a sound like the wail of a cat with its tail caught in a fence. But the noble red man likes the music, which perhaps is, after all, not so very much inferior to that of Wagner. Thus ends this particular reading of Part 1. We'll offer Part 2 next week. Thanks for joining us for an Apache campaign in the Sierra Madre. Part 1 by John G. Bork. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a minute, please do stop and send us a review. We also appreciate comments at Spotify. Until next Sunday at noon, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
Thank you. 